Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Africa Past and Present, a podcast about African history and culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oleggi, still in South Africa for another month or so. And this episode is the second of our trio of talks recorded at the Making History, Terence Ranger and African Studies Conference held at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, in October. The discussion with Professor Paul Landau covers a range of areas, such as African languages and cultures, the nature of pre-colonial and colonial societies, and the history of polities. Professor Landau also discusses the invention or imagining of so-called tribes by missionaries in the 19th century to help explain the roots of popular culture and politics of southern African peoples and their great propensity to amalgamate and accommodate each other. Special guest is Paul Landau, Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland, College Park. He's a leading scholar of Southern African and Swana history, and his books include Popular Politics in the History of South Africa, 1400 to 1948, uh, very recently published by Cambridge University Press, and The Realm of the Word, Language, Gender and Christianity in a Southern African Kingdom, published by Heinemann in 1994, 1995, sorry, and not to forget uh, another very interesting book with Deborah Caspin that he edited entitled Images and Empires, Visuality in Colonial and Postcolonial Africa from Berkeley in 2002. Professor Landau, welcome to Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, congratulations, uh, first of all, on your new book from Cambridge. Um, we have it, in, in fact, in front of us, and uh, it's uh, bedecked with a wonderful photograph on the cover um, that really ha tells so many stories in itself. I wonder if you could just speak to that for a, for a moment. Sure, Peter. And uh, let me also say that I'm, I'm very honored to be uh, interviewed in this uh, podcast, which I listen to regularly. Um, the photograph uh, is a photo taken by Isaac Shapira, who many listeners uh, will know is uh, one of the uh, most uh, well-known ethnographers of Africans who has worked in the 20th century. And uh, the picture is of an age regiment, the Makuka Age Regiment, and uh, they're dancing in honor, uh, I suppose, of the resident commissioner. Uh, and the photo is taken in uh, Machudi. But the posture is uh, very aggressive. Um, and in fact, it is the posture of attack at that particular moment. And uh, I thought it was an unusual photo when I, uh, when I found it. Uh, I found it reviewing uh, Jean and John Komaroff and Deborah James's uh, book on Isaac Shapiro's photographs. And so I immediately uh, chose it for the, uh, for the cover. Encapsulates these contradictions of aggression and hostility being contained somehow and channeled uh, under colonialism. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, photograph uh, for a wonderful book, I think. And well, your first book focused on broadly Swana peoples and lands between about the 1870s and 1940s. But your latest book it really is, to me, a tour de force of the wider region. And it ranges across fully five and a half centuries, tru truly a long durée, uh, as historians will say. And uh, whilst it builds upon the earlier book, Realm of the Word, the new book also moves into new uh, imaginings, new intellectual pastures. Can you explain why you wrote this new book and 
and perhaps uh, explain some of your main themes. Um, some that stood out to me were these uh, uh, ideas and themes of alliance, mobilization, amalgamation, and genealogies. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Um, I think that the way to answer the question of why I wrote the book is, is, uh, is to begin with uh, the idea that I was struck by the fact that so much of the way the pre-colonial past in Africa and in South Africa also is, is uh, rendered is of a religious place, a place filled with beliefs in things that the commentator or author often thinks aren't true and so they're understood as beliefs or rituals or other kinds of activities that uh, are seen as somehow not rational. And the problem is that I wasn't satisfied with that way of looking at the past. And um, particularly um, uh, because <coughs> it was formed out of a kind of conceptual um, appropriation of the past by missionaries, where missionaries looked for false ideas and beliefs and then sought to replace them. And so there were a, sort of a consolidation of African ideas that were replaceable by truer uh, religious ideas. Um, and so I began thinking about what was there in the past. Um, and I was also very aware that um, the paradigm of Africans resisting colonialism was also not um, fully satisfactory to me. I mean, essentially, I can't grasp colonial history in South Africa without seeing Africans in motion coming out of their own past, doing something that might not fully be understood by Europeans, but that has its own logic, uh, not just about resisting encroachment, but is already a project engaged in building or, or failing to build something. Um, and so I needed to find out what that was. And, and so to, to come about in this roundabout way to answering your question, I then realized that you know I could, I could talk a, a great game about how th there was this project in motion, but I didn't know what that project was. And so I had to go back and find out. And this was a sort of a big learning curve for me. And so I went back and, and uh, I threw out all of the received translations that missionaries had done. And I tried to figure out uh, what was going on in the earliest recorded conversations between Europeans or non-Europeans and uh, people in South Africa and Southern Africa. Um, I looked at the uh, oral traditions, which uh, include a lot of genealogies of past chiefs uh, collected by missionaries and by ethnographers. And I tried to uh, understand them without assuming that they talked about the history of this or that tribe since we've learned, in part from Terry Ranger's work, to distrust the idea of tribe, to, to, to view the idea of tribe as something that has a particular historical life and is constructed at a particular time. Um, and lastly, to look at uh, um, archaeology and to see what archaeologists had, had uh, brought to the table. Um, and, and through that, I began to see that I could interpret difference as the key to understanding African life in, in, the, in the centuries leading up to 1800, say, and not sameness. That is to say, I could, I could begin to understand 
the tradition of the Heifeld as particularly good at incorporating people and bringing them into a political system. And the irony of this is that Europeans, when they encountered Africans, saw them as particularly insular and as, as people who are all about the continuity of, uh, of uh, bodies of people and the exclusion of outsiders. And in fact, that was the European way of thinking uh, rather than the African way of thinking. So I think I'll, 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 I'll pause there for a moment and give you a chance. Yes, and we are, in fact, uh, at the uh, conference on Terence Ranger and the making of African studies, and you mentioned the name of Terence Ranger. I'm looking at his comments on, on, on your, the cover of your book, and he congratulates you on a remarkably successful book and says, we now see that tribe and ethnicity are constructs dating from no earlier than the 19th century. For the first time, Landau asks what forms of consciousness and organization preceded them. And uh, he, he adds that, that your book will have to be taken account of by every Southern Africanist. And I think this is very, very true. So really, I wonder, and I put this to you at the conference yesterday in the sense of uh, how people might build upon the, uh, the framework that you've now opened up. You've, you've unlocked another key to the understanding of the past. So what happens when one drops this ethnic insularity in looking at high felt traditions across this period? What alternative forms of life or social organization then stand out? Well, that's a good question. Of course, I am thinking of uh, uh, Terry Ranger. He's in mind because we're, we're at this conference for Terry. Um, I think that it's also important to, to say that uh, I also, as a sort of principle of how I went about things, rejected the idea of religion as an autonomous field of behavior for Africans. Um, and so after rejecting all of this, you know, w w the danger is that one is at sea and one doesn't have any concepts to deal with at all. Um, but in fact, what I wanted to look at was the formative period in which the religious domain was constructed and in which it began to serve people's interests to see it as a separate domain. And at the same time to look at the formative period for ethnicity because I do think that ethnic identities came about in Southern Africa and in South Africa a bit earlier than some of the work on the invention of tradition might suggest. I and mean, I, I certainly think it's a process that begins in the 1830s and the 1840s rather than comes about rather more suddenly at the end of the century. And so the answer to your question is that I saw the middle of the century as a very formative period in which there were many different claims on, the, on what constituted political organization and behavior at once. Um, some were from establishment Christian missions, uh, which were claiming out of the, the mixtures of various kinds of association and mobilization, this is Christianity, this is our domain, we're recognizing you as Christian but not you. And there were simultaneously uh, Griqua, in other words, mixed race uh, people uh, stemming from Griqua town who had their own uh, evangelists and their own political operatives essentially organizing people uh, far to the north of the Fall and even the Hearts River in, in South Africa. 
Um, and then, of course, there were African states um, in alliance with one another, um, kingdoms, uh, mshueshues, and most of all, because it, it uh, becomes a focus in my book, Tabanchu, the uh, chieftain of uh, Morocco. Um, but I also look afield and, and look uh, briefly at uh, Zulu and uh, Koza and other uh, formations, and I see these as competing in one contested domain where they're all dealing with the same ideas of a claim to overall power, a claim to have the most powerful ancestor or chiefly presence, and that these are sorted out just around the time where there are a set of wars in, uh, uh, in the middle of, of South Africa and, and to the east in uh, 1849 to 1854. Um, and these wars are often dealt with severally as if they deal with different things, with Mshueshue on the one hand, with Mlanjeni and the uh, uh, Cat River Rebellion on the other. But they, they all crystallize at a certain period of time. They all have a religious dimension. In other words, they all deal with the idea of a supreme chief or ancestor directing authority to take certain forms. Um, and uh, the, the result of, of this conflict in the end is, I think, the order that comes to be in South Africa, where there's uh, increasing land loss, increasing dispossession, rather, of, uh, of the people who, who had held uh, land and had been expanding and forming their states on the land. And the order that we associate with South Africa then uh, uh, is formed from that. You mentioned uh, wars and power, and um, you recount many examples of the resilience of African political culture over the decades, over the centuries. And, and you tell it as well as anyone might in its own language or languages and from primary sources where you can to argue that African society was or societies were far more accepting and integrating of outsiders than we may have imagined in contrast to this narrow European construction of tribes um, and that reminds me of our discussion this morning where we talked about at the conference on violence in Zimbabwe in Kenya and the Congo and I wonder if this uh, reimagining of African politics that you, are, that you have so successfully done helps us to, in a way, relate to the present. We've had problems of xenophobia and violence, and so in, in some ways perhaps this, this reimagining is something that has to also go on today in, in African societies at the political level. Well, again, thank you for that. Um, you know, I take my book all the way up to 1948, and uh, I think that it's it's important to to understand that the traditions of uh, of, of African political affiliation that I discuss, um, because they deal with incorporating strangers, are in fact very flexible and capable of changing. And it's it's uh, it, we mentioned alliance and ranking. And I think the point to make here is that chiefship existed in a matrix with other chiefships where there were constant relationships, some of which were very close and I think were in a sense reimagined as founded on prior brotherhoods, um, and some of which were not that close and, and perhaps were conducted through diplomacy over, over long distance. But it's, it's only when these kinds of relationships are broken down 
that you can have the emergence of the idea of the tribe. And so the same words and phrases that once had overlapping uh, meanings that had to do with affiliations that could be cross-referenced and ranked now come to mean ethnic groups on the high veld and elsewhere, Batlaping, Bahuruzi, um, um, Barolong, and so, and so forth. Um, and in my book, I, I follow a rural, particular rural tradition of attempting to create or recreate the Barolong kingdom of Tabanchu, or chiefdom of Tabanchu, um, after the land had been taken by the Orange Free State under President Brand. And uh, these attempts were unsuccessful, so it's really a story of tragedy and failure. But in the attempts, one sees, again, the same forms of political organization, the same recourses to alliances, the same idea of, of twin courts as a potential ranking, um, the same idea of men's regiments, uh, which are, are capable of, of forcing the chief's hand or of supporting an alternative chief if they want to. These things continue, and I, I want to insist that these are political ideas because the way that uh, some scholars often look at these rural movements is some sort of atavistic return to tribalism or, or some kind of purely res restorationist kind of movement for defunct chiefdoms that should be defunct because now, of course, we have nationalism. And the point that I want to make is that that's not really fair. And it's, it's inadvertently a kind of embrace of an apartheid mentality, which, uh, w which views all African behavior in the past as somehow based on ritual superstition and, and biological affiliation, and denies them a heritage of political activity and, and, and changeful organization. So much food for thought and putting Africans center stage in their own history and such a fascinating book, readers, so please do read it. Thank you, Paul Landau, for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Peter. Africa, past and present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>